Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. As, this is gonna be, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah chapter 1. You'll recall that for the Advent, I did a sermon on Nehemiah as a whole, all 13 chapters. It was uh, like drinking from a fire hydrant, getting the big picture. But now, in 2024, in the evening, we can take this chapter by chapter. So we begin in Nehemiah chapter 1. Before I read God's word, let us go to him in prayer. Our Lord, would you please illuminate this text for us that we might see our own brokenheartedness and cry out to you for reformation, for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray, amen. This is Nehemiah chapter 1. Hear now the word of God. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the, outer, in the uttermost parts of the heavens, of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Two weeks ago we ended our brief three-sermon series in the book of Nahum. We saw that it was a hard word for the nation Nineveh to hear, that Nineveh would be Nineveh no more. We saw that that word to Nineveh is God's way of sounding the warning bell to all individuals, families, tribes, tongues, and nations to kiss the sun, lest he be angry and they perish in the way. It was also, at the same time, a hopeful word, Hope for all who hide themselves in God's house. And by house, I mean that spiritual household of God, being sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. I don't mean the physical building where the people of God meet each week, as beautiful as this building is. I speak this way because of Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John 4, 21. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The Jews in Nehemiah's day and the Samaritan in Jesus' day had this in common. Corporate worship and God-glorifying living was linked to the physical meeting place, formerly in the tabernacle, later 
the temple. This is not to minimize the physical building in which we are even now worshiping God and, of course, for which we give God great thanks. But we must remember that God in the Old Testament sent messages to his people through hard providences. And one of those hard providences was the ruin of the temple and its walls. The temple destroyed meant to the Israelites much more than what it would mean today to us if, say, or a tornado came through here and destroyed this beautiful building. Surely, we would be sad. But it would mean something else. We wouldn't take it as a sign of fatherly discipline. In other words, in our text this evening, we enter the world in which God had communicated very clearly to his people their need for a broken and contrite spirit. And he did it through the broken walls of the city of Jerusalem. To be even more clear, the broken city becomes an object lesson for the people in the city. We see this evening through this text that our covenant-keeping Lord breaks his people for our whole life restoration. That's always important to set in context this book that we are studying, the period when, the places where, and the people who form the literary structure of the book. You have to bear with me. There's much context to consider. Again, Nehemiah isn't a common book that's that's regularly preached, probably unusual or atypical for a lot of us. What about the period? The period of Nehemiah is very near the end of the Old Testament period. This is helpful because how many pages in our printed Bibles remain after Nehemiah? For instance, in one of my Bibles, Nehemiah begins on page 457, and Matthew begins on page 1059. It would be wrong of me to take this fact and conclude that a thousand pages of history remain between those two books. No. In fact, chronologically, Nehemiah is neck and neck with Malachi, the last Old Testament book. The book of Nehemiah spans several decades, the mid-460s to 430s BC. Even though most of the events recorded in the book zero in, take place in the spring and summer of 445 BC. Verse 1 in our text says it happened in the month of Kislev. Kislev is the ninth month which could be confusing uh, if you think whatever the, ninth, the September, it's not September, it's our mid-November or December based on their lunar calendar. And it happened in the 20th year, the text says. That is to say, the 20th year of Artaxerxes, who reigned, as we all know, from 464 B.C. to 423 B.C. So doing our Bible mathematics, we come to a starting date of 446 B.C., mid-November, December time. So that's the time frame. But where is all this taking place? In two places, actually, Susa and Jerusalem. Nehemiah tells us that he was with Artaxerxes in Susa, the citadel. Susa was the dwelling place of the Persian kings during the winter months. And as we just established, this is happening mid-November, December, winter months. To put this in more context, these events take place after Esther, who was around 480 B.C. And you say, well, that doesn't make any sense because Esther comes after Nehemiah in the canon. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. And yet, chronologically, Esther's before Nehemiah. What's going on? 
Well, this is noteworthy because you'll recall that the book of Esther is about Jews in Persia, whereas Nehemiah is about Jews in Jerusalem under Persian rule. The other place is Jerusalem in particular, and Judah more broadly, more generally. It is from Judah that men come to give a report to Nehemiah about how things are going in Jerusalem. And it is the city walls of Jerusalem that have been broken down and are in ruins. Moving now to the people, this book mentions a lot of people. It'll be difficult to pronounce all of their names. Chapter 1 was easy. Other chapters record so many other names. And most of them, we don't know. I'm not going to give you a commentary on all of the names as we move forward in this book. There's a lot of names, a lot of people. And there's a reason for that, which we'll get at later. But let's just consider five people or categories of people this evening. The first is Ezra. Ezra is a male's name. So I might think it's a female's name, but Ezra is a male's name. He makes some cameos in this book, but he doesn't hog the spotlight since a whole book is given to him or even written by him called Ezra. Ezra was an older contemporary of Nehemiah's. So he was operating around the same time, but he was just older than Nehemiah. And he was a scribe and he was a priest for God. Ezra had already set out for Jerusalem 13 years before, before this chapter 1 in Nehemiah. Ezra had already been He had already been set out for Jerusalem in 458 B.C. And we see him showing up significantly in Nehemiah chapter 8, which is actually a reference to Ezra chapters 7 and 8, in which Ezra reads the law of God to the people of God. It's a very pivotal moment in um, post-exilic time for these Jews. Second person is Nehemiah. And Nehemiah tells us that he was the cupbearer to the king, to King Artaxerxes. Verse 11, that's what he says. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And this word is the same one that's chosen to describe one of the men in the Joseph story. You might remember that Joseph story, the man in prison with Joseph, the one whom Pharaoh restores to service. That was the cupbearer. This cupbearing service was an honor. Nehemiah was a high official in the royal house. He was well-respected. It was his job to choose and to taste the wine to demonstrate that it was without poison, to demonstrate that by living or by dying. This regular service also meant frequent encounters with the king, frequent conversations with the king. This regular service was, like I said, a very honorable service. He was well-respected. Nehemiah will later, because of the great honor that he has, he will become appointed governor of Judah for quite a while. Now, it's not a coincidence that the major figure is named Nehemiah. His name is similar to Nahum. Does anyone remember what Nahum means, having just studied that in the evening? Y'all are shaking your head. What do they teach in this place? Nechem means comfort. Remember how it, seemingly ironic it was that this word of great judgment was actually a word of comfort. It wasn't a comfort to the Ninevites. It was a comfort to the Israelites because the Ninevites were going to be destroyed. Now, I bring that up because Nahum is very similar to Nehemiah. It's just that the I-A-H is added in Nehemiah. 
which is Yah. And perhaps you guys know that Yah means the Lord. So Nehemiah means that the Lord comforts. The Lord is going to comfort his broken, repentant people. So we should see comfort in the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, the person, is a significant means by which the Lord will bring that comfort to the people. The third person under consideration is the king. The king, as already mentioned, was Artaxerxes. Not Xerxes, of course. We don't want to get those two guys mixed up. Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, remember him? He was the king who made Esther the queen, who reigned from 486 to 465, 464. I wish I had an answer to this question, but this question had been in my mind for a while since I've been studying this. Did Nehemiah's and Esther's paths cross? Since there's mention of the same place, Susa, and same time frame a bit, maybe Nehemiah was just super young and Esther was a little bit older, or maybe they just missed each other. I don't know. Neither text tells us that they, if they had an interaction or not. I guess we'll have to wait to ask them in heaven. But Artaxerxes I, Longomanus, was the Persian king from 464 to 423. He reigned for 40 years. That's the third person. The fourth person or category of person is the remnant, which we read about in verse 3. This is that small group that had survived. It says the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. This group consisted of those Jews who had survived, but we have to ask, survived what? In the background, these Jews are from that stock of Israelites that returned after the period of the Babylonian exile, which was begun in 586. Now, that is a date that you should know as Bible students. 722 and 586, those are key dates to know. But it's more than that. This, uh, that happened three generations ago. That happened 122 years before Nehemiah 1, which might be significantly in the past as far as these the remnant is concerned. In Ezra chapter 4, we read of the attempt to rebuild the temple walls, which attempt had been reported to this king, Artaxerxes, and the rebuilding was crushed. So this king in Nehemiah 1 had earlier been given a chance to allow the rebuilding of the temple walls, and he squashed it. And we'll see later on, he actually accepts it. He approves of it. But at that time that he had crushed it, we see then the hope of the remnant was barely hanging on. They were suffering. The remnant in exile was in great trouble and great shame. And fifth, we have the opposition. We don't read mention of any opposition in this chapter, but it is close by. We will soon see Nehemiah face to face with enemies, both foreign and domestic, Persian and Jewish. And this opposition will be very important in God's plan, because this will add to the troubles that the people face and will be one of the providences by which God tests their zeal and faithfulness to him. In other words, will they be faithful to God in the face of great hostility, in the face of great mockery and opposition, even plots for Nehemiah's death? I know there's a lot of context to take in, there are moving parts, and admittedly, it's hard to piece together neatly all the events in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. But it's all very important. 
because this context informs our reading the hearts and the actions of the people. This is the background that is, is useful to, to know why Nehemiah does what he does and why um, he prays the way he does, why he's talking about sin, why he's going to institute law and risk his own life for the reformation of these city walls. Look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So why was the remnant in trouble? Why was the remnant in shame? Why did Nehemiah weep? It was because of the broken walls. It was because of the ruined city. And that was because of sin. So I want to draw out very briefly six attitudes or actions that the repentant display. And if you're following along in your bulletin, you'll see that there's no bold application. That's because the second point of these six attitudes, that's all application. We're now into the application part. From this prayer, Nehemiah leads the way to mourn over the sins of the people. So the repentant mourn over their sins. They lament their own misgivings, their own uh, imperfections, their own law-breaking. Nehemiah weeps, he mourns, he fasts, and he confesses Israel's sins and his own sins. I and my, fam- my father's house have sinned, he says. It was because of unbelief, it was because of unrepentance, it was because of idolatry, it was because of rebellion that God had brought the Babylonians their way to ransack the precious, glorious temple of the Lord. Through Nehemiah, God reminds the Jews that their hearts must mourn over their sins. And through this posture, Nehemiah points to the attitude of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here we must be careful. Christ wept, but not for his own sins. He mourned, but not for his own imperfections. He fasted, but not for his own law-breaking. He confessed, but not his own sins. Because he didn't have any sins. He didn't have any imperfections. He didn't break the law at all. So why is Christ weeping? Why is he mourning? Why is he fasting? Why is he confessing? Because he's functioning as our mediator. Confessing because of us and for us. Fasting, weeping, mourning because of us. Because of our sin. And for us. To make intercession for us. At the start of his earthly ministry, he joined us to himself in his baptism. And at the end of his earthly ministry, he prays to his Father for us because of our sins. And if the Son can mourn for our sins for us, surely we can mourn for our grievous sins as well. Indeed, Jesus gifts us with the blessing of mourning. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What kind of mourning is this? Is not just blessed are those who are sad? Everyone is sad from time to time. Blessed are those who are sad that they have sinned against the holy God, that they have transgressed his ways, that they have broken his holy law, that they have not honored him, they have not given thanks to him as they ought to have done. That mourning is a gift. It's a divine gift. 
It's a gift from the Spirit. Praise God when you hate your sin. Praise God when you are sad because you have sinned. Obviously, you, you don't want to do that. You don't want to sin against your God. But the fact that you do mourn over the sin is a gift from God. It shows that you don't have a hard heart. It shows that God has softened your heart, that God is working in your life, that God is making you sensitive to his law, to his ways, that you love him, that you want to follow him with all that you do. That's a gift from God. And through Nehemiah, we see this as regular mourning, as occasional fasting, and as daily confessing. Repentance, Martin Luther reminds us, is not one and done. You don't say, well, I repented, and that's it. I repented when I was like four years old, and now I don't have to do any repentance anymore. He says in the first thesis of his 95 Theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Our own Puritans in their, Puritan, in their prayers say we repent of our repentance. We even know that our repentance isn't up to snuff. It's, it's not the best that it can be. We mourn even the fact that our mourning is imperfect. What does it say? But we are, we are always acknowledging that we are sinners in need of a Savior. J. Gresson Machen distinguishes in his book, Christianity and Liberalism, paganism from Christianity. He says, paganism is that view of life which finds the highest goal of human existence in the healthy and harmonious and joyous development of existing human faculties. While paganism is optimistic with regard to unaided human nature, Christianity is the religion of the broken heart. That's one distinction. Paganism exalts what man can supposedly do. Christianity says, my heart is broken because I've broken the law of God. This brokenheartedness assumes a sin consciousness, that we are aware of our sin. And so the repentant, those who truly desire revival and reformation, and even a sign of revival, is here mourning over sin. We as individuals, as families, as a church, as a society, as a nation, we can do a lot more mourning over our own sins. And when we do, we should expect revival. We should expect family-specific reformation, church-specific reformation, society-specific revival, nationwide revival when we mourn over our sins. God acknowledges and even honors that kind of behavior if it is truly coming from a broken heart that acknowledges where we have sinned against God and that we desire to live in a manner that is befitting his holiness. Verse 5, he says, And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So second, the, uh, the repentant call upon God in prayer. Nehemiah was a man of action. We'll see this regularly through this book. But his main action was prayer to his Lord God. We'll see interspersed throughout this book, brief prayers, long prayers. Nehemiah is a praying man. 
He valued this means of grace. And do you see how he depends upon God as the one who keeps covenant? He calls upon God to let his ear be attentive to his servant, Nehemiah. And he knows that as he prays to his covenant-keeping God, he will be heard. Likewise, you open the Gospels, and you'll soon see Christ prostrate, his mouth full of prayer. He prayed to his Father for himself. He prayed to his Father for his disciples. He prayed to his, disciple, or to his Father for you and me, for all of life. And if Christ's life was prayer-filled, how much more should ours be? We need the Father, do we not? We need the Spirit. If communion with the Father was the Son's heart and joy, it ought to be ours as well. William Grinnell in his book, The Christian in Complete Armor, says, prayer is the key of the morning and the lock of the night. It's a wonderful way of putting the importance of prayer, beginning and ending the day with prayer. Third, the broken depend upon the Word of God alone. In verse 8, he says, Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember your word, O Lord. And so Nehemiah models for us dependence on the Word of God. And we'll soon see Nehemiah's actions in concert with the Mosaic law. But for now, he depends on God's Word, knowing that God will keep His Word. Likewise, Jesus Christ, the very Word of God, eternally begotten of the Father, depended on the Word of His Father as He fought Satan's temptations, as He lived all of life on earth. Before the cross, He pleads with His Father to glorify His name through sanctifying us in the truth, for His Word is truth. And we follow the Son as we depend on the Word of His and our Father in heaven. Depend on God's Word as you do food for the day as God's word is heavenly bread. As you commit to drinking your 82 ounces of water each day from your beautiful Stanley cup, may it be a reminder for you to drink deeply from God's refreshing waters day after day. Do not think that you can live by physical bread alone, physical water alone. You need his word. Verses 9 and 10, he says, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. So not only does he say, remember your word, but he says, remember you're redeemed. He asks God to remember the Jews that God has chosen, that God has rescued, that God has brought back to Jerusalem. And throughout this book, then, we will see Nehemiah operating like another Moses. He pleads with the covenant-keeping God to remember his promises, not to forget, but to remember with divine favor the people that he has redeemed. Likewise, the Son of God prayed to his Father, glorify yourself and me in the salvation of the redeemed, and so remember those whom you have chosen. It is not a denial of God's omniscience, nor is it lacking assurance to cry out to your God saying, remember me, O Lord God of heaven and earth. We say you have redeemed us by your great power and by your strong hand, and we urge you to show us this divine power and strong omnipotent hand now. It's a good place to be, to call upon the strong hand of the Lord to lift you up, to rescue you, 
And fourth, we see in verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayers to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. So the fourth attitude and or action of the brokenhearted is delighting to fear the name of God. Delighting to fear the name of God. Nehemiah says, Lord, remember that there is a remnant here that loves you, that loves to fear your name, that delights to fear your name. What does this mean? But that the repentant revere the awesome God. It was the son's eternal and earthly delight to fear and glorify his father's name. The son would say, it is my food to do the will of my father. In Hebrews 5, 7, it says, Jesus was heard because of his reverence. Because his mouth was filled with awe for his father. He loved his father. He sought to obey his father in all things. He sought to glorify his father Everything he said, everything he did. He says, I've not come to do my will, but the will of my Father who sent me. Never did the Son begrudge his mission from the Father. He thoroughly delighted in fearing the name of his Father and glorifying him day and night, 24-7. And so we pray with the psalmist in Psalm 86-11, Unite my heart to fear your name. It's a brief prayer, but it helps refocus our hearts. Unite my heart to fear your name. Not my name, not the name of anyone else I'm trying to impress. Not the name of the world. Your name. The name that is above all names. Charles Spurgeon says, if you do not desire to fear God's name, there is nothing in worship that is acceptable to the Most High. For God abhors a sacrifice where the heart is not found. A man really never praises God until he desires to do so. Just showing up is not fearing the name of God. Just singing a song is not truly delighting to fear the name of God. Of course, we all want you to show up and sing the songs and confess and hear the word. But we want you to want it. We want you to desire it. And not only we, but primarily God. He's looking for true worshipers. So John 4 says he's seeking people who will truly worship him in spirit and in truth. And we cannot think that anything we offer will be acceptable until we desire to revere his name, to fear his name. And fifth, the broken in spirit keep the Lord's law. In Nehemiah's day, it was the people's sins that brought them to this point. They were brought into exile because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion, because of their sin, because they rejected God, their covenant-keeping God. They didn't keep covenant. They abandoned him. They got to this point because of themselves. And despite the centuries of prophetic warning, and so adding disobedience and rebellion will only hinder the restoration that they desire. As another Moses, Nehemiah recalls Deuteronomy 30, verses 9 and 10, which says, For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. God, it says, God will take delight 
and making them prosper when they obey, when they keep his commandments, when they turn to him with all that they are. God loves obedience. God loves when we keep his law. Again, not in any way by which to become justified. We know that. There's nothing that we could ever do to get in God's good graces, if you will. But God has given us his law as a rule of life. So we should seek to obey him. Why does God love when we obey? Why does God, uh, why will God prosper us when we turn to him? It's because we're becoming like him more and more. To obey our God is to become more like Christ. And that's what the Father desires. That's why he has saved us, that we would worship him and be like his son. And so we should likewise really delight in obeying God because as we obey God, we become more like Christ. We become more like the Father who created us and who saved us, who made us to worship him, who made us to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Joy-filled obedience is a sign of real repentance and earnest reformation. If there's no obedience, there's no reformation. It's just that simple. So many times, and this is when I grew up uh, a bit of a, well, not a bit, I grew up a charismatic, and we would have, uh, there'd be these uh, summer camps, and we would go for a week or two, and we'd come back, the bus ride, it was like, Wow, everyone's, what the phrase was, like, on fire for Jesus. Wow, that person's going places. You see how, how her hands were lifted high in the worship service? That person had a demon kicked out of her. That's crazy. She's a, he, he's a new person. He's a new person. And then, what, a couple weeks later, you find out they're just doing the same thing that they were doing. There really wasn't any real change. It was just emotion. And emotions are good, but not if they're the only thing there. We're not here to get a feeling, though feelings ought to accompany true worship because we are made with affections. Again, if, if you don't desire to worship God, which is a feeling, which is an affection, if you don't desire it, it's not, it's not true worship. Sentiment alone is insufficient. There's the will, which is the, where our hearts incline, what we do. There's the, there's the act. And we should obey with fullness of joy. John 14 through 16, read that section. Life in the Spirit means abiding in Christ, which means obeying the Son. And let us then be diligent in keeping God's lovely law as that rule of life given for us. And finally, we see in his prayer in verse 11, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. And so the sixth attitude, action of uh, the repentant, of brokenhearted, is that they desire favor before man for God's glory. The broken desire favor with men. At this point, you say, you have me in the first five, Pastor Ma, but this sixth one, no. Favor before man? 
Didn't you just say earlier we need to fear the name of God and not the name of man? Yes, yes, I did. I'm glad you were listening. But pleasing man isn't always bad. Pleasing one another isn't a bad thing in itself. In fact, Paul tells us that if we're spouses, we really should be seeking to please one another. You're wrong, oh husband, if you don't try to please your wife. And you're, you're wrong, oh wife, if you don't try to please your husband. Employees, you should try to please your employers. Children, children, you should try to please your parents. It's a good thing to please your parents through your obedience, through your prompt obedience. It's not wrong to please people or even just seek to please people. Pleasing man isn't always bad. Seeking man's approval isn't always evil. See, Nehemiah is wanting the king's approval. He's wanting the king's favor. The question is, to what end do we desire favor with men? Why does Nehemiah pray to God that God would grant his servant, Nehemiah, success and mercy in the sight of this man, this king, Artaxerxes? Why does Nehemiah want that? So he can ride and get up the corporate ladder as a cupbearer? No. If we desire favor with men to obey and glorify God, then we are on the right track. Nehemiah desires mercy in the sight of this man for God's glory in the restoration of the walls and the reformation of the people. And those are godly goals. If ever there were any, he wants to please the king. He wants to be well-respected by the king that he, could, that he might go to Jerusalem and be about the king's business. And even the son had a good reputation before men. They couldn't deny his eternal wisdom, his compelling authority, his great works, his intense compassion, and his love for his father and all who turned to him for life. Indeed, even Pontius Pilate found no fault in the faultless son of the father. Elder candidates were told they should have respectable reputation from outsiders. Paul desired that his godly reputation preceded him to have an audience in Felix, in Festus, in Agrippa, and in Nero, that God's name would be glorified and that God's people would be blessed. And so do we desire to be looked well upon by outsiders, not for compromise, not for the exaltation of our own name, but for the glory of God in the reformation of worship and living? <clears throat> let us let our lights shine before men, that God would be glorified in us and through us. Our covenant-keeping God breaks his people for a whole life restoration. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our gracious God, we do thank you for this word. We thank you for these actions and attitudes of the repentant, and we do pray that we would display these with greater frequency and accuracy and fervency and affection, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.